0: Inside Chicago Government. ShyGov.com. Hello, welcome tonight. Thank you so much to com- uh, for coming to tonight's event, um, celebrating the launch of Haymarket's and Carrie Leiderson's new book, Mayor 1%. <laughs> We are very grateful to the Haymarket Brewery for having us tonight. Um, obviously, they um, hold a special place in our heart at Haymarket. Um, at Haymarket, we like to say that we are publishing books for changing the world. But books themselves don't change the world, people do. And the people Carrie describes in Mayor 1%, the people organizing for change and for justice, are the ones changing the world for the better. When we started talking to Carrie about this book, we knew she was a terrific writer and journalist, but we're thrilled with how vividly she's brought to life one of the most destructive political figures in our city's history, as well as the truly inspiring resistance to the agenda of the 1%. In this age of austerity, budget cuts, segregation, mass incarceration, and school closings, when put next to the vast wealth of the very rich friends of our mayor... Documenting the struggles of those who stand up are critically important. After a panel uh, speaks, we invite you to buy a book at the back of the room, um, bring your book to carry to sign. We hope that it's a sign of the resonance of the book's message that the book's first printing has actually now sold out.) <laughs> and it hasn't even been out for two weeks yet. So, forgiz- forgive us if we run out tonight. We will send you a copy that's signed by Carrie. <laughs>
1: Well, thanks uh, so much to um, Haymarket for inviting me to do this project, and they've been so wonderful to work with. And um, thanks to Haymarket Brewery for having us here, and to the panelists for joining me, and everyone for coming. It's um, exciting to see just this much interest and this kind of resistance bubbling up. Um, So I'll I'll read a little bit from the book, from the introduction, and then... um, I'll introduce the, the panel, and, and we'll all talk, and then we'll have some time for questions and comments. So this is the introduction starting uh, March 4, 2012, uh, about a, a little over a year after um, Rahm Emanuel was elected mayor. So March fourth, two 2012, was Chicago's 175th birthday, and the city celebrated with a public party at the Chicago History Museum. The event promised actors portraying famous Chicagoans, including Jane Addams, founder of Hull House, an advocate for immigrants, children, and factory workers. Little did the organizers know that the show would be stolen by a woman some viewed as a modern-day Jane Addams, more eccentric and irascible, less renowned and accomplished, but just as willing to raise her voice and speak up for the weak and vulnerable. Mayor Rahm Emanuel grins broadly as the Chicago Children's Choir, dressed in red, sang a lively version of Happy Birthday. He had reason to smile. Ten months earlier, he'd been inaugurated as leader of the nation's third most populous city, taking the reins from legendary Mayor Richard M. Daley. And while his term hadn't been a cakewalk, so far things seemed to be going well. He had inherited a nearly $700 million budget deficit and attacked it with an aggressive round of cost-cutting and layoffs. The labor unions had resisted, but ultimately Emanuel was able to strike some deals and come out on top. Meanwhile, he was moving forward with his plans to institute a longer school day, a promise that had gained him positive attention nationwide. He was already assuming Daley's mantle as the green mayor. In February, he had announced that the city's two coal-fired power plants would close, and miles of new bike lanes were in the works. Emmanuel had even snagged two important international gatherings for Chicago, the NATO and G8 summits, to be held concurrently (laughs) in May 2012, the first time both would be hosted in the same U.S. city. There had been sit-ins and protests by community groups and unions related to the summits, to the school closings, and other issues, but Emmanuel had shown a knack for avoiding and ignoring them, and so far he didn't seem to have suffered too much political fallout. As Emmanuel watched the swaying, clapping singers at the birthday party, he didn't seem to notice a crinkled orange ban- paper banner bobbing in the crowd of revelers. It said, history will judge Mayor 1% Emmanuel for closing mental health clinics. He'd gotten the moniker early on in his tenure. As Occupy Wall Street-inspired protests swept the nation, it was a natural fit for a mayor known for his high finance connections and brief but highly lucrative career as an investment banker. A staffer for the mayor or the museum did notice the banner and told the man holding it to put it away. Matt Ginsburg jekyll complied, partially folding the banner and lowering it into the crowd. The song ended and Emmanuel began shaking hands with the singers and other well-wishers near a colorful multi-tiered birthday cake. Then a shrill, rough voice cut through the chatter, causing heads to turn as the orange banner was unfurled and raised again. Mayor, I'm sorry, I I wish I could do the voice of Helen Worley, which is um, burned into many people's memories, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to try. Mayor Emanuel, please don't close our clinics. We're going to die. There's nowhere else to go. Mayor Emanuel, please, cried a woman with a soft, pale face, red hair peeking out from a floral headscarf and dark circles under her wide eyes that gave her an almost girlish, vulnerable expression. It was Helen Morley, a Chicago woman who had struggled all her life with mental illness but still managed to become a vocal advocate for herself and others in the public housing project where she lived and for other Chicagoans suffering from disabilities and mental illness. For the past 15 years, she'd been a regular at the city's mental health clinic in the Beverly Morgan Park neighborhood, a heavily Irish and African-American working in a middle-class area on the city's southwest side. It was one of six mental health clinics that Emanuel planned to close as part of sweeping cuts in his inaugural budget. He said it made perfect economic sense. It would save $3 million, and the patients could move to the remaining six public clinics. But Morley and others pleaded that he didn't understand the role these specific clinics played in their lives and the difficulty they would have traveling to other locations. Morley's eyes were fixed unblinkingly on the mayor as she walked quickly toward him, calling out in that ragged, pleading voice, her gait and gaze intense and focused. Almost all eyes were on her, except for those of the mayor, who shook a few more hands and then pivoted quickly and disappeared through a door, studiously ignoring Morley the entire time. Mayor Emanuel, she cried again as, she dashed out, as he dashed out, please stay here, Mayor Emanuel. The abruptness of the exit, the cake sitting there untouched, the lack of closing niceties, and the crowd milling around awkwardly gave the impression that the event had been cut much shorter than planned. With the mayor gone, Matt Ginsburg-Jackal and fellow activist J.R. Fleming stepped up on the stage and lifted the banner behind the cake. Morley centered herself in front of them and turned to face the remaining crowd, earnestly entreating, people are dying, They, they aren't going to have nowhere to go. Emmanuel's critics and admirers have both described him as a quintessential creature of Washington and Wall Street, a brilliant strategist and fundraiser who knows just the right way to leverage his famously abrasive personality to get wealthy donors to open their wallets and to help him win races. He became a prominent fundraiser for powerful politicians in his 20s. He made some $18 million in investment banking in just two years. He played central roles in two White Houses and he orchestrated a dramatic Democratic takeover of the House of Representatives during his six years in Congress. He clearly knows how politicking works, but being mayor is different, or at least it should be. In Washington, people are often tagged as political allies or adversaries, fair game for manipulation or intimidation. In Congress, Emanuel represented his constituents, but the daily grind had a lot more to do with beltway machinations and maneuvers. Running a city where you are elected to directly serve people and listen to them is supposed to be a different story. But Emmanuel was treating Chicago as if it were Washington. Perhaps that's why, even in his brief tenure as mayor, he has seemed to find it so easy to ignore the parents, teachers, pastors, students, patients, and others who have carried out multiple sit ins and protests outside his fifth floor office in City Hall. These citizens frequently note that Daly had not been particularly accessible, sympathetic, or democratic in his approach. But at least he would meet with people, acknowledge them, make perhaps token efforts to listen to their proposals and act on their concerns. Emmanuel can't seem to find the time for many members of the public, they complain, even as he says he wants their input on issues like school closings. Parents, grandparents, and students with the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, for example, camped out in City Hall for nearly four days trying to deliver a formal plan that community members had drafted in conjunction with university experts to protect their local school from closing and create a network of educational resources in the surrounding low-income neighborhoods. His response was to ignore us, said G2 Brown, COCO's education organizer. We had our problems with Mayor Daly, but Daly surrounded himself with neighborhood people, and he himself was a neighborhood person. This man, Rahm Emanuel, has surrounded himself with corporate people. The administration is doing the bidding of the corporations and robbing us of the things our parents fought for. So that's to set up the battle lines a little bit. Um, so now I want to introduce the um, panelists who've been kind of at the forefront of um, well, even, even before uh, Mayor Emanuel, but of the, the struggles that have um, really taken center stage since he took office. So Brandon Johnson is a teacher and organizer with the, and community activist with the Chicago Teachers Union. And um, Amisha Patel is with the Grassroots Collaborative, which launched the Take Back Chicago movement of about two months ago. Uh, ben Juravsky is with the Chicago Reader, um, one of the mayor's uh, probably favorite people from <laughs> So um, we'll hear first from Bryn. Thanks.
2: Well, thank you, uh, Carrie, for your um, intellect and bravery around this topic. Uh, and let me just say this, because uh, the mayor of Chicago is always looking for um, opportunities to run commercials. And when Julie introduced the book, she said, Mayor 1%, and you all applaud it. <laughs> so if you're in a commercial cheering for Rahm Emanuel, you did it here tonight. So just be careful <laughs> next time you applaud when 1% Mayor uh, is introduced. So uh, let me also just say um, it, it's an honor to be a public school teacher. And the... And the, the threat against public education is not a conspiracy, it's real. Uh, the, the attack on public education, uh, we can find the attack on public education um, at the very inception of this country. And so I would be remiss if I did not at least acknowledge all of my brothers and sisters of the Chicago Teachers Union uh, who are here tonight. And so thank you, brothers and sisters. Appreciate you. because this this fight for public education is is collective. But but let's just put some things into context. Uh, Mayor Emanuel represents all that is bad uh, when it comes to um, public education and just privatization as a whole. And so if we think about the history of this country, where educating black people, poor people, was illegal. Uh, You fast forward through the Civil War, uh, it was uh, somewhat permitted, uh, but they begin to burn down schools uh, that attempted to educate black people and poor people. And then now you fast forward to 2013, they are now closing schools, 50 schools here in Chicago where Mayor Emanuel um, actively pushed for that failed policy. School closings in Philadelphia, Kansas City has lost half of its public schools. The attack on public education is real, and it's being carried out by both Democrats And Republicans. This is a bipartisan decision to roll back everything that we've built in this country. And so when we think about what has happened here in Chicago, uh, when the mayor, first of all, I think it's interesting that uh, before Rahm Emanuel became the mayor of Chicago and there was some flirting of him running, uh, the president of the United States said that he thought that Mayor Emanuel would make a great mayor. Um, little did we know uh, that he was only speaking for the one percent, and and I think that we have to be extremely critical of both political entities that are dead set on destroying public education. And and when you look at the the narrative around this country, and you see Republican governors, Democratic mayors that are all committed to the interests of private corporations that want to shape education in their image. Let's also be very clear that these are the same corporate interest groups that that have found their foothold here in Chicago um, that are also looking to turn a profit off of public education. Here in Chicago, the budget for public schools is $6 billion. It's a lot of money that the corporate interest groups want to make sure that they have their hands on. And so we have to be very clear, just like we've introduced here in Chicago what a fight could look like around the country, that the group that says that they are in favor of our children, that they want to provide choice and opportunity for our parents, they're not telling the truth. They're being extremely disingenuous. And today, through the leadership of Kerry, we're going to expose that. And so... (laughs) So if we could just uh, try to rush through the strike, which I think is quite unfair, uh, because it was the most exciting time that I've ever had as a teacher. (laughs) foregoing our paychecks to ensure that children in Chicago Receive a quality of education is something that not only teachers can be proud of, but parents can be proud of because it was one of the most important and popular strike that we've ever seen in our country, and we can thank Rahm Emanuel for that. (laughs) And so one of the things that we were very clear about, we weren't just simply fighting to fend off those that wish to destroy public schools. We actually had a plan that works, and one of the things that we made very clear during the strike, that you cannot separate public education from the conversation of poverty, because poverty in this country actually matters. And so when we begin to do a, a, a diagnostic test, if you will, uh, on the public schools here in Chicago, we discover that over 160 schools in Chicago did not have public libraries. I'm just going to let that sink in for the rest of the world. That... Children were going to school every single day without access to a library or a librarian. Where class sizes were out of control, 35, 40 kids in a classroom, or even worse, some students did not have a regular assigned teacher to their classroom. No proper ventilation, no air conditioning, no books for our students. This is the city that launched the first black president, but we can't get books for students? There's something terribly wrong with the country that will pride itself as this great inclusive situation that will deny poor people the opportunity to learn. And so as the CTU began to expose uh, the fact that the mayor was pushing a longer day, even though he was not going to fund it, the mayor began to push for a longer day, even though there was no evidence that a longer day was going to result into uh, uh, better learning outcomes. Um, Not only did we expose the fact that we didn't have libraries, no books, uh, no proper ventilation, no air conditioning, um, class sizes were out of control, where most of our students did not have art and music. We're talking about very basic fundamentals for our children to be able to learn and to flourish. This mayor was dead set on moving failed policy that did not deal with the big issue, which was poverty. And so when the CTU made the conscious decision to forego our paychecks, to ensure that at least the conversation is raised, it's a day or days that we'll never forget. But where are we now? So even after the strike, and there were some positive wins that we took away from that strike, we're also very clear that after the strike, the mayor of Chicago was determined to destroy the CTU. And so what did he do? He moved an agenda to not only close down schools, but to close the largest number of schools in our nation's history. And so thousands of parents organized, marched for days, connected with community leaders, connected, connected with their pastors connected with their school leaders to say with a resounding voice that we do not want our schools closed because research tells us that closing schools does more to harm our students than actually, actually help them. And so after thousands of parents came up from all over the city to say we don't want our schools closed, the mayor stood at a press conference and said this is what parents want. His gross neglect and his arrogance has caused tremendous turmoil in this city. Think about what the first day of school looked like here in Chicago. We're talking 50 years from the march in Washington and our children were escorted to schools with police officers, helicopters, firefighters. This looked like something straight out of, straight out of Alabama. This is the city of Chicago. This is America. And poor children are being forced to walk through territories that are not only not safe, but once they got to the schools, all the things that the mayor promised, he did not deliver. And then he took it one step further, where school budgets have been drastically reduced, where in some cases 9, 10, 15 teachers have lost their job because of this mayor's policy to defund public education. And one of the other big elephants in the room, and i 'll close with this is that you cannot have a conversation about public education without having a conversation about race and the schools that were closed were overwhelmingly in black and brown communities, and we 're seeing this across the country, but in chicago it, it's it 's it's actually mind-blowing, because this is quite personal. I'm raising two boys in Chicago. Yes, they both happen to be black as well. Very attractive young boys, by the way. <laughs> but my oldest son, who is now in kindergarten, so I'm a CPS parent, a proud one, by the way, but our neighborhood school was closed. No one asked me whether or not uh, my school should be closed. And so now my sons and the kids that he are, he's growing up with do not have access to a public neighborhood school. Not only did the school closings overwhelmingly affect black children, but it also affected black teachers. Over half of the black te- of the teachers that lost their job were black, and we've seen this gradual decline uh, that was actually. Uh, Implemented or started 20 years ago when the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Daley, at that time, took complete control of the public school system. And then he had this uh, ingenious idea uh, to put Paul Vallis in charge of the public school system. Um, And if you look at Paul Vallis's record, Paul Vallis is actually the grandfather of privatization and corporate takeover of public schools. And so Paul Vallis has gone to Chicago, where public schools have been destroyed. New Orleans, public schools have been destroyed. Philadelphia, public schools have been destroyed. You get the point. And finally, when he got to Connecticut, those folks up there said, oh, we know what you're about. And they sent him packing, but they sent him back to Illinois. So we we, got to figure out somewhere else for him to go. (laughs) But... The, the, the move of the mayor to continue to privatize public schools, to close these schools while at the same time calling for more charters, is something that's not only going to exacerbate the loss and the decline of black teachers, but it continues to stratify our school systems where you have intensely poor black children in a concentrated school with very limited resources and the very people who black children tend to look towards for some sort of guidance and hope, That group is being uh, denied. And so my last point here is that as Chicago, with the first black president sitting in the White House, the policies that are being moved by Arne Duncan are destructive. W.E.B. Du Bois said it this way, that public education at the expense of the state in the South in particular, after all, is a black idea. We cannot allow the black idea that moved this country forward be destroyed while the first black president sits in the White House. Thank you.
3: So I'm going to talk um, on some of the things that Brandon touched on and also I think maybe a few things that Ben will touch on. Um, So my name is Amisha Patel. I'm with Grassroots Collaborative. We're a community labor coalition made up of 12 organizations that work in the city and across the state around economic and racial justice. Um, you know, I think Emmanuel, like many big city mayors, though thanks to New York City, not all big city mayors um, are pushing a fiscally conservative pro-corporate agenda that benefits a few at the expense of many. I think Carrie does a really, um, really important job of laying out all the ways that that's true of Mayor Emanuel. Um, what that's looked like here, as um, as Brandon touched on, was a massive attack on teachers um, and the public sector. And let's be clear, that is about union busting. And that's about union busting in particular because of the power, the political power in particular, that unions have in the city, right? So breaking the the union closing down public schools breaks the Chicago Teachers Union, which breaks the political power of Chicago teachers to fight back against his agenda. So there's a very clear thing happening here. So on multiple levels um, of what this attack looks like, um, he's also under since he's been in office um, has eliminated the head tax, the corporate head tax. So this is um, this was a tax that was in place on corporations with more than 50 employees um, to basically pay for some of the infrastructure expenses and and to acknowledge the profits that corporations were making by being based in Chicago, that was eliminated. So now, at the same time, that happened at the same time that he passed the budget to cut mental health clinics by 50 percent, right? So a very clear connection of who's benefiting and who isn't from the policies that moved forward under this administration. He's also continued, I mean, this isn't. This of course didn't start with our current mayor, right? We had um, a few years of Mayor Daly beforehand where a lot of this agenda was moved forward. Um, but he's absolutely continued the pro-downtown uh, pro development um, and in particular around what TIFs, tax increment financing has done and what that looks like here in the city. Um, so I think Ben actually called it this himself, which is that it's a shadow budget, right? So it's about $500 million every single year that gets diverted from our property, taxes, that instead of going to schools, parks, and libraries, at this point, goes a huge majority of that money goes towards downtown development, towards developers in the central part of the city, um, goes to things like DePaul University's basketball stadium. Um, again, at the same time, the, like within weeks of the, the um, historic um, destruction of 50 public schools in the black community was the announcement, I think originally around 50 million, I think it's up to like 90 million now in TIF money that's being used on this private um, university stadium. Um, and that's just one example of, of several different things that have come, you know, that have come under in terms of TIFFs Even there's many different projects uh, of that. The, one of the things that the collaborative actually spent a, um, a bunch of time fighting against was 29.5 million dollars to Riverpoint Plaza. So Riverpoint Plaza is a downtown building that's soon to be constructed, um, and that 29.5 million dollars of TIF money was used to create a park. Um, but what they call a car- park and green space is actually some trees for um, smokers. No offense to smokers on their smoke break to have a pretty place to look at while they're t- you know while they're working in their um, corporate high rise. Meanwhile, you have Brighton Park Neighborhood Council that has been fighting to rehab Kelly Park that has only needed a couple million dollars to make that a safe park space, and for this Latino low income community, the city consistently saying there's no money. There's no money. They find money though when they need to and they found thirty million pretty quickly to give to wealthy developers who have plenty of money money to construct that building in the first place. Um, there's a pretty high vacancy rate right now in downtown Chicago. So what happens is when a downtown building gets created with TIF money, it just means that you're moving tenants from one building to another. You're subsidizing the profits of that new development, but not actually creating any new resources right, to go back into the community. Um, Privatization under this mayor again continues a long line of privatization here in the city. Um, a few things that our mayor, Mayor Daly, had done that we continue to live with. Um, mayor Manuel. Um, is moving moves along those same lines, right, so looking at privatization of airports of healthcare care with the closing of the mental health clinics, waste management this idea of force uh, of co- forced competition between public employees and privatizers um, um, infrastructure, the Chicago infrastructure trust that is still completely really unknown though when um, introduced originally was introduced in a mad hurry, um, our infrastructure is crumbling, um, we have to pass this now, there is no time for debate and a year later. They are just now introducing the first projects, Um, but it was a—you know—it was we had we had we had had three weeks or four weeks within to try to to mount. any fight back against this effort that is really, um, really potentially dangerous in terms of the amount of power given to pr- um, private financiers whose interest is not the public good when it comes to infrastructure, but it is about their profit. Um, that's a very dangerous precedent, and we weren't able to put any kind of real accountability or checks... or. Um, Checks against that power because again it was told to us that it's you know bridges are falling down right now um, and it will be on your head if we don't if that, that bridges that bridge falls and we don't we haven't and you've stopped us to try to actually put some accountability in, um, so there's. And all of this, right, is under this theme of, of a global city, right? The Mayor, Mayor Emanuel really trying to create Chicago, again, under this um, under this name of a global city, which is code word for basically a city for white folks with money. Um, it really is about um, policies that um, that perpetuate a, a city that is um, a, a divided city, right? One of two cities where um, those who can benefit do benefit through their connections and through their political um, positions um, are doing quite, Quite well in the city but when you step outside of the, those lines right which is about where we are now and a, and a few a few mile radius from where we're sitting today um, the city looks really different and the struggles are really different and the the benefits that are supposed to trickle down to us and we've heard this before um, are continu- continue to not be true our work to really take this on and I think that um, you know it has been about trying to organize um, Organize against this to lift up, a, lift up the truth around what's happening. Folks get it. Like we've we've door knocked in the last few weeks around um, around TIFs around the surplus ordinance. We've been door knocking in neighborhoods across the city people get it immediately, right? This isn't an easy, this, isn't actually, this is not actually fairly much a no-brainer. Um, what people, and people, it's also very clear is that folks are looking for independent leadership. They're looking for their aldermen in particular to be independent leaders, to actually stand up against the mayor, to fight for what's happening in the neighborhoods and communities. Yet there's a disconnect between what the council actually does and between what residents in the city actually want. Um, one of the things that, uh, that Brandon talked about that is, I think, in, incredibly important is looking at race when we talk about the city, race and racism and the policies in the city. Grassroots Collaborative a few weeks ago um, released a study um, called Downtown Prosperity, Neighborhood Neglect, Um, and it looked at the impact of jobs um, in the city. And what we looked at, you know, what we noticed was that the mayor would... um, every day sometimes um, or every week or sometimes every day would announce, make a new, press, a new press conference a new press release about all the jobs that he's bringing in successfully into the city so we knew there's this one story that um, mainly mainstream media was eating up quite easily and sort of like that long list I don't know what it got up to, 30, 40, 50,000 um, and meanwhile the reality of the closing of, of public services in the city, we knew that who was losing jobs in that moment, which wasn't being cal- there were no press conferences uh, that the mayor announced around that, was um, a was loss of primarily black and Latino workers in the public sector, So, which is the place where you have middle-class jobs in communities of color. So the destruction of mental health clinics, the destruction of schools, the cuts, cutbacks to libraries, all that only has a direct effect on communities because of those services not being there, um, or those institutions not being there, but also people's livelihoods um, being destroyed, Um, that years and years and decades of work and the place to get good good jobs um, being completely destroyed. So we knew that there was a, a disconnect in terms of what was really happening. So we did a study that looked at job growth and job creation. And what we found is that um, within a ten, 10 year period in the last 10 years, um, over 50,000 jobs were brought into, were, were created in Chicago. And we looked closer at that number. And what we found is that three out of four of those jobs went to folks who live in the suburbs, who live out of state. These jobs are heavily subsidized, again, by tax increment financing by Chicago tax dollars that actually are not going to create jobs that Chicagoans are getting. And we looked at the one in four jobs that were going to Chicago residents, and we, looked at, we did an analysis based on zip codes, because of course when Chicago, in such a segregated city, we can find out who's actually getting those jobs. And surprise, surprise, those jobs are going to white, the areas of white majority zip codes in the city. Black majority and Latino majority zip codes have lost huge numbers of jobs downtown. So when we look at actually who's been, what the policies are and who's benefiting from it, it's very clear what's happening. And instead of reducing inequity in the city, um, the policies of this administration are actually furthering the divide. So all that to say, what do we do? Um, or What we actually um, like to talk about is uh, WWHD, um, which is what would Harold do? And um, part of... Part of the reality of uh, you know living here in Chicago is that we have to look 30 years ago to look at the last time there was a political moment and a movement happening in the city. And I think as organizers now, part of what we're trying to think about is what can we learn from that movement 30 years ago? And what does it take at this moment to actually move forward a new vision for the city or what we call taking back Chicago? Um, and this, what this looks like for us or what we're experimenting with right now is, you know, and I don't think it's, it's rocket science, but it is about organizing, it's about strategy, and having a framework that's very clear and political in terms of how we understand what the issues are and what we're gonna do about them. So I think it's really clear that the streets are alive. The streets are absolutely still alive. Um, it was such an amazing inspiration to be um, a supporter of the Chicago teachers during the strike and to really be so, have a, such a clear perspective of whose city this really is. Right, and and though the strike is over, that, that that city is still ours, and our work is to organize to make that actually true, and to and to have people reconnect to that fact, and to actually be p- taking action to um to build to build a, um, to build a movement. Um, Part of what Take Back Chicago did, so on October 15th, we pulled 2,000 people together at UIC Forum under a shared economic justice agenda. Um, And we looked at five different campaigns, and we looked at five campaigns that were actually already moving that people were working on. So a campaign to raise the minimum wage here in Chicago. A campaign to have a fair tax so that the rich pay their fair share in the state of Illinois. Um, A campaign to, yes... um, a campaign to make sure that, um, that school, our tax dollars actually go to education and not to, these, uh, not to downtown developers. Um, we, we had a push around the budget and to make sure that there were not um, cuts to public services and certainly no more cuts to mental health clinics, though I think the real push is to get restore and expand that, th- those services back instead of always being on a you know, sort of a let's fight to make sure we don't, you know, a defensive fight. How do we actually expand public services in this moment, which I think is um, really key to moving, uh, moving families in the city forward? Um, And I think that um, part of what this effort was trying to do was, how can we actually create a political moment? So we're not waiting for three months before an election to try to pull people together, or three months after an election to say, okay, what are we going to do? How do we actually try to create a political moment? Because we know that the uh, the dissatisfaction and the anger is there, and how as organizers can we create a space for people to come together and express that dissatisfaction and that anger in a way that connects into active campaigns? And what we did out of that Take Back Chicago is that City Wide. We had over 30 organizations, um, 2,000 folks. We moved into a campaign um, to try to push forward the TIF surplus ordinance. Now, the TIF ordinance wasn't um, wasn't what we created. We actually did this work two years ago, um, and um, uh, the calling what we called for back then was the responsible budget ordinance. But I think the key thing that's relevant there is that in that ordinance that we did two years ago, where we called for a TIF surplus and we had parameters about who, like which TIF district, really targeting downtown TIF districts. Um, You know, two years later, Mayor Emanuel actually um, issues an executive order Pretty much calling for what we called for two years ago, but it was now his idea. Um, and so, uh, but our push was like that an executive order isn't good enough. Let's we, let's make legislation and let's make sure that this can't be changed by the whims of the mayor about whether they deci- whether he decides that this is actually good policy or not. So I, I'll, I, I know I need to wrap up. But what I'll say is that in four weeks from Take Back Chicago, um, we put 676 calls into aldermen, um, patch through calls of voters into their aldermen, sent um, 993 email. 738 postcards that we got from door knocking and from, um, from grassroots mobilization across the city. And all of this work in an intensive period of time led to three votes, three new votes into the prog- in addition to the Progressive Caucus around this TIF surplus ordinance. And you could look at that and be like, my God, what a failure. And I think the reality of this political moment in the city is, my God, we got three votes. Um, (Laughter) Clearly it's not enough, right? But this is the beginning, and that's why we're organizing now. And it's clear what it takes to actually get those votes. It was a huge amount of work by Bickerdike, and I see um, um, Marla here in this room who was a big part of that fight. Um, it was a huge amount of work by folks targeting um, several aldermen across the city to hold all, to, to hold their feet to the fire, and I think that's exactly what it takes. Like, we've got to have real political education at the grassroots. We've got to interconnect our communities. So we've got labor and community and faith together organizing um, at the grassroots grassroots level, we've got to have a very clear narrative of where we're trying to go and and not be afraid of naming this as the corporate agenda, um, because it's not actually something that folks in the communities are scared of. They get it. They're living it every day. Um, And we've got to have coordinated strategic action to be bold, be clear, and be correct in our work. And the last thing I say is that we have to actually build grassroots political power. Um, 2015 is not that long away. Um, There's work to be doing. There's energy that's out there. We've got to actually mobilize, build a grassroots political base to take back the city, because it's ours. Thank you.
4: Well, um, first of all, my name is Ben Jarovsky, and I write for the Reader newspaper. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Thank you. And, um, I believe I am definitely the oldest person on this panel. Mm, mm. So I have the longest amount of memories and experiences about Chicago. And um, so before I get too involved in memory lane, uh, I want to thank Carrie for writing this book. Uh, (laughs) uh, I find uh, nothing personal, but I find Mayor Rahm Emanuel one of the most annoying and obnoxious people that... uh, (laughs) I've ever had to cover, so better carry than me in terms of dealing with them. Uh, I read it and wrote about it, so your book, that is, and I think you were remarkably restrained, um, (laughs) very fair, uh, and uh, you really bent over backwards. to try to give the man his due even though he would not uh, participate in the writing of the book, would not be interviewed. Even his assistants would not be interviewed. Uh, which sort of points out uh, a point about Rom, Chicago, and the people in this room. I presume that Rom's handlers, or Rahm himself, uh, took a look at Kerry's uh, interview request when it came in and figured it was coming from the left, Uh, the perspective that is. And as far as I could tell, um, Rahm Emanuel has utter disdain bordering on hatred for people from the left. Um, I think that part of the reason he has that utter disdain is because like many leaders of the Democratic Party, he works from the assumption that people on the left have nowhere else to go but to the Democratic Party. And so as a result, they're sort of a captive audience, and you could do to them what you will. Uh, Now, most Democratic politicians that I've followed don't turn that into disdain. So at least try to pretend like they care about the things that you care about. In fact, today I got a phone call. From an alderman who will remain anonymous because this alderman wanted it to be an off-the-record conversation, um, and uh, I'll give away his gender. He was defending his vote on the recent uh, TIF matter uh, that Amisha was just describing, which was one of the most entertaining public debates we've had in the city in the last few years. <laughs> And uh, his point was that uh, you have to work with the administration at times to get what you want, and you have to suspend um, your larger goals, beliefs, objectives, and principles from time to time (laughs) to get ahead. Uh, This is a very, very common worldview in the city of Chicago. So I have, as I get older have a harder and harder time being upset with the politicians that the people of the city of Chicago elect, and I become more and more upset with the people of the city of Chicago for electing those politicians. Um, As much as I I respect Amisha and agree with almost everything she says, I'm going to have to disagree with a couple points, or at least we could throw it out here as a possible point of discussion. And she said, the people get it. I've seen, at the risk of sounding incredibly dispirited, uh, no evidence that the people of Chicago have gotten anything since they elected Harold Washington back in 1983. And even that was a racially divided vote in which almost 50 percent of the city didn't get it. So I actually do believe, with the second point you made, and... and And this is part of this unique schizophrenic attitude in the makeup of Chicago voters, which is that people in Chicago do respect politicians who stand up to power. I I throw this challenge out to every single alderman I talk to, and I talk to aldermen all the time. I cannot recall any alderman who lost his or her seat because he or she defied an all-powerful mayor. For years, now, there's not a lot to choose from in that category, (laughs) because, granted. But I go back, I remember there was an alderman from the south side, his name was Alan Streeter, and he had a fight with Jane Byrne, and the people of, I believe it was the 17th Ward, elected him over Jane Byrne's candidate. I remember Helen Schiller, who one time or another was the leading independent in the city council before she learned about the TIF program, joined the ranks, but (laughs) Mayor Daley tried every which way he could to unseat Helen Schiller. He threw up Michael Quigley at her. He brought in all his goons from the southwest side to run Quigley's campaign, and it was a divided vote, but Uptown reelected Helen Schiller. I stand by, I think Amisha's right, that people in Chicago, they may not get it, but they do want independence, which leads me to this point. I still can't quite get my mind around the realization that the people of the City of Chicago not only elected Mayor Daley, what is it, five times in a row, but they overwhelmingly elected Rahm Emanuel. And uh, so I go around, I ask more questions than I answer. I usually ask my fellow citizens, who did you vote for? Pretty much everybody I meet, I ask, who did you vote for? And now I'm based on the results of what they're telling me, I've come to the conclusion that Rahm Emanuel didn't win the election at all (laughs) and that the real winner was Miguel (laughs) Dovalle. What it is, I think, is that a lot of people in Chicago didn't realize who they were voting for or they didn't vote, which is just as bad. And so... (laughs) They elected this man who's a little to the right of Mitt Romney. (laughs) And so now, what's next? And uh, this is a question that is always being raised. I'm sure it'll be raised in this very room uh, when the official program is over. As everybody says, well, who's going to run? And my response more and more has been, that I think we should stop looking at the Harold Washington model because that presumes a great leader will step forth to lead us out of the promised land. Now, Harold Washington was a one-in-a-lifetime individual. I see really nobody right out there now who reminds me of Harold Washington and all his levels of greatness. He's elected official, first of all, so he knew politics. So I always tell people to look at the Jane Byrne model. And the Jane Byrne model occurred four years before the Harold Washington model, which was in 1979. And in 1979, the voters of the city of Chicago got so disgusted with the way the city was being run that they elected a woman who had been written off as a complete and hopeless flake. (laughs) She had no significant political support. She had no money to speak of. She was mocked and maligned by all the powers that be in the city of Chicago. And when that blizzard hit and the machine was incapable of delivering the most basic and essential services, people just said, to hell with it. I'm voting for the lady. And she won. So I think Chicagoans, in my humble opinion, this is my dream, should stop being like children and looking for someone to lead them to where they want to go. And they should stand up and take accountability for their own city and elect somebody, well, even if they don't like the person, just (laughs) defeat somebody that they really don't like. (laughs) So we'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> well, I want to say thanks again to Ben and Amisha and Brandon for talking and everyone for coming. and. Um, just to see a, a crowd like this is you know wanting to talk about the mayor and and the victory of the teachers' union is um, really amazing and inspiring and, and that 'll lead me into um, some points I want to make to wrap up, um, which is that this book is is definitely a story about Rahm emanuel, um, but it 's also a story about Chicago and its people and, in the, and on both fronts a really ongoing story um, and I think talking about and you know despite ben 's very valid point about um, the fact that so many Chicagoans did vote for Rahm Emanuel and, and Mayor Dealey over the years. Um, nonetheless, we have a pretty amazing uh, populace with just you know, so much potential and talents and power. Um, And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, especially at a moment like this when I think there really is this um, sentiment with facts to back it up, including the study that Amisha talked about, that we're really at kind of a a tipping point where Chicago's um, future and image and identity is being sort of redefined and reshaped. And um, the mayor has been really central to that. He's been really open and actually kind of boastful about the way he is transforming the city. And you hear all this talk about making it a hub of um, startups and tech companies and clean energy. I I love clean energy. I write about energy. But, you know, the greener, cleaner, kind of hipper city um, that's really been drawing the creative class from all over the country and, you know, all the bike lanes and the urban gardens and, the you know, the – sustainable food hubs and all these things which are great but they're part of a new image for the city and when uh, Amisha mentioned all these um, announcements about creating the new jobs and um, those have been you know there's been a lot of some studies including theirs that debunked how those numbers really add up in any way that benefits kind of regular people. A lot of these jobs are jobs that are already filled by someone in the suburbs who's just commuting into the city or they may be new jobs but they're looking for a very specific kind of person who's, you know, has these tech skills or very specific skills that um, sort of fit this new image. And um, they're not, in a lot of cases, jobs that can be filled by people that are without work and including all the people that have lost their jobs because of the privatization and the cost cutting um, during this mayor's uh, administration. The the teachers, the other staff at the schools, the janitors who um, work for SEIU Local One, that was one of the stories that I was really inspired by Um, Following, they already worked for a private company, but um, for a contractor, but the mayor brought in a different contractor. It looked pretty clear so that he could bust the, the powerful um, SEIU Local 1 mm-hmm. union, and um, the new contractor brought in workers that were making a much lower wage and much more part-time work, so far less sustainable jobs. Um, the therapists at the mental health clinics and the, the union says that all the black male therapists were laid off, which you know obviously has huge ramifications for their families and their communities and um, also for the patients that had strong bonds. And can 't just go to another you know a white middle class woman therapist and have the same kind of relationship um, so those people you know probably th- these people that were laid off are you know a, one of the janitors from O'Hare is probably not going to get a job at one of these new startups you know realistically, and that income is gone from their community and all the ripple effects that that has um, so uh I think um and that uh the way the mayor talks about reshaping the city and bringing all this talent in, he's literally ignoring all the homegrown talent and creativity and brilliance that we have already. Um, and specifically these, I, I think one of the examples that I alluded to in the introduction of the book was this sit-in that the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization did in City Hall and they had developed a really comprehensive um, seemingly really innovative fantastic plan to save um, one of their neighborhood schools and to reinvigorate the surrounding community. And the mayor literally wouldn't even step out of his office to talk to them about the plan. They eventually got it into his hands but there's no indication that he ever read it or responded to them about it. So um, he has a record of really ignoring um, input, not only ignoring, but actually actively sort of undermining and trying to discredit um, people like the teachers who Uh, are on the ground and and have first-hand experience knowing how to address these problems, like the violence that's become a a national, um, even international, really, embarrassment for the city. Um, He may be talking to, you know, these different consultants all around the world about the most cutting-edge policing strategies, but he's not talking to the teachers and the parents who are impacted every day um, and the kids. Um, And that that, uh, leads me into um, just one of my sort of one among many, I guess, of my pet peeves <laughs> with the mayor um, during the talking about him ignoring public input. He canceled the budget hearings. Harold, Harold Washington had started these um, budget hearings in the evenings, so in different communities, so people who work during the day and have trouble getting downtown could give their input about the budget. And the mayor did hold those hearings during his first fall in office, and he was booed at them because this was during the time period that he was making these um, draconian. Budget budget cuts and was already um, breaking or kind of ignoring union contracts that were in place. So he canceled the budget hearings for the next two years, and um, the Progressive Caucus did hold alternative budget hearings where people poured their hearts out, but the mayor wasn't there. There were literally uh, several hundred hearings related to the school closings, and as far as I know the mayor and his appointed school board members didn't show up at any of those hearings. Um, And teachers, parents, community members, students were testifying at those hearings, and, and Pouring their hearts out and talking about what worked in the schools and what didn't. I mean, you really couldn't get a better forum for concrete. Um uh, input on you know how we could uh, address some of the problems in the schools. So that getting to the, the, the pet peeve I mentioned, during his campaign for mayor and then also during the time around the teachers' strike, which really kind of bizarrely became like a, a second campaign because the mayor had um, really picked this fight with the teachers' union from early on around the longer school day and um, denying raises that were actually in the contract. So... The, the, t- the teachers' strike and the period around it became, for him and, and then the teachers were sort of forced to treat it this way as well, um, a battle where, you know, someone was going to win and someone was going to lose. So it was more about not actually, for the mayor, not actually reaching a solution but beating the teachers. And, you know, their rhetoric was very clear, and it um, tapped into, of course, the larger debate around um, the role and the shape of public education and, and the role of teachers' unions. And the mayor and his um, proxies were really trying to drive home this message that you know the teachers are lazy and ineffective and greedy and they're the ones screwing the kids over. Um, so around this time, he had this... Um, phrase that he used several times with a slightly different wording about the kids in the public schools having empty eyes or having nothing in their eyes and, you know, this implication that they were so beaten down and, you know, their schools are so terrible that it was robbing them of their personalities and they just had no hope Um, and, I mean, to me and especially as a journalist who, you know, you try to look at the meaning of words and think like very literally what do these words mean it was just so ridiculous and insulting and to me really um, revealed how he, you know, despite this being this sort of campaign mentality where he he was politically obligated to make it seem like he cared about um, kids in the, you know, we're talking mostly like the south and west side lower income neighborhoods where all these schools were closed and where so many of the teachers um, and uh, public school parents are who are out on the streets came from. Uh, so, you know, the fact I feel like any parent or teacher or you know, anyone who has a kid in these uh, neighborhoods would not describe their eyes is as being empty. I mean, they're full of life and full of hope, and sometimes anger or sadness. And they, you know, they do experience a lot of trauma. But um, uh, I just felt that, uh, you know, that phrase revealed um, the mayor's not only lack of understanding, but lack of respect for these whole communities. Um, so, uh, and I, I know it's really cliche to say that youth are our future, but it's obviously true. Um, so I think it is kind of striking that, you know, the mayor it, it looks fairly um, certain maybe that he will have at least one more term and who knows beyond that so you are talking you know literally a generation of public school students who are growing up with this administration and seeing firsthand um, the the debate over the role of of the public sector and the way their parents and teachers are you know really being disrespected and then also the way their parents and teachers and neighbors and themselves are going out in the streets and going to city hall and going to the board of ed and um, becoming involved in this civic debate so you know that's got to make a difference and I think it'll be um, really exciting to see what unfolds over these coming years and um, what kind of legacy um, will last even even after the Mayor Emanuel has um, either been voted out of office or you know, left to try to seek greener pastures on his own. Um, I uh, ended the book with uh, just kind of bringing it back to one of the other members of the mental health movement. I'm not sure if he's here, but um, Chewy Camposano is you know, one of the many mental health movement members who was really inspiring to me. Um, and uh, so, in, and at all the different um, events and protests, and then people have, may have seen the videos or, or seen in person. Um, Aishan Johnson, one of the uh, young students who's become a real outspoken activist, and who some people are saying should run for mayor. I, you know, maybe I don't, I don't know if Emmanuel will still be around when he's old enough to legally do it. But um, just hearing about uh, Chewy being really inspired by, by um, Aishan, and he was saying Aishan was. Uh, um, at least his mom was, you know, telling him to sort of get some lessons from Chewy. So, I mean, there obviously are. It's just, it's uh, despite the apathy and, you know, various things that <laughs> Ben referenced on the more cynical um, side, I think it will be, <laughs> no offense, we need that, but um, I think it will be pretty exciting and interesting just to see how Chicago responds. I'll leave it at that. And thank you again to um, Ben and Brandon and Amisha and to Haymarket for... Uh, Haymarket Books and Haymarket Brewery, and, um, and please tip well for the the servers here at Haymarket. And then to open the um, some questions and comments, I wanted to actually start if she's here with uh, Sarah Jane Ree, who is really generous in allowing us to use some of her photos, and who is at the Woodlawn Clinic occupation. Is I'm sorry, is Sarah here? I don't know. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, anyway, but, so thanks, to Sarah, and I guess, and um, yeah, if people want to, you know, raise your hands or, mm-hmm. yeah, um, uh, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and I think we'll actually take about four or five questions, and then we'll kind of, you know, open it up here a little bit. Um, oh, uh-huh. Trying to get behind
5: uh-huh. right? you,
6: the mic up. I have more of a comment than a question. Everybody in this room wants. Mr. Emmanuel Toulouse as soon as possible. They will not fight fair. Therefore, we can't fight fair. Let me say this. I was a union delegate for many years. And the union, I love them, they're my brothers, my brotherhood, they would not even endorse a candidate for mayor until it was too late. They made a complete mockery of endorsing anyone and it didn't help our chances because they were afraid he was going to win and we'd be penalized. Well, he won and we're penalized. <laughs> Two, Chicago is the most sectionalized city in the country. No doubt about it. People in South, short, South and West want basketball courts. Pilsen wants soccer fields. Everybody on the North wants whatever they can get their hands on. In order for us to ever win, we need to fight unfair. We need to truly be brothers. We need to come together and say what's going on is not only wrong, it's indecent, and terribly indecent. The last school I taught in is Mather. We spoke 90 languages in that school. I know diversity. We need to appeal to the new Chicago, the new people. We can't have 10% of all minorities voting, because if they do, we're going to lose forever. Not this election, every election. They are counting on us being apathetic. They are counting on a rainy day so that no one votes. They are counting on this, I've seen it. Look who his friends are. Daley sat while he appointed him to the next seat. It was appalling that he won without a second call for election. I never thought that he would get a majority. When I saw the votes the next day, I couldn't believe it. It was nonsense. Are we going to win? If we are, we don't fight fair anymore. We don't fight fair. We fight as filthy as they are. And we start now.
7: I would just like to say we have enough research. Um, I think we're really repeating mistakes of the past. When it comes to How to solve problems in the city, we're not holding anyone accountable for a plan. We have the University of Chicago that has the answers for how to solve the problems with the schools, how to solve the problem even when it comes to crime. Because I worked on one of those research projects that... Investigated not the Chicago Police Department because at the time the Chicago Police Department would not allow research of their statistics, but it was another medium sized police department, uh, Aurora Police Department right outside of the city same problems because our people have went to that community and what i'm what i 'm basically saying is putting money into police instead of schools is not the answer when you don't have a plan for the police to even work effectively. And so, you know, you need to hold people, I mean, hold this administration accountable for solving the real problems, you know, and not taking money from the schools and giving it to the police and giving it to all these other entities and then we still have the same problems. We're not gonna solve crime in this city Until we decide to deal with poverty and race and all of these other issues. And I mean, we have the answers. We're just not, you know, we just do more research, more commissions, more studies, and then business as usual. But you have to take that and really seriously decide that you're going to solve these issues that basically resolve around poverty.
5: A question for Mr. Johnson, is it, and Ms. Patel. Um, Mayor 1% is not only Mayor of Chicago, he's one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, and, of course, he's very close to the president, who's another leader of the Democratic Party. So he really represents the interests of the leadership of the Democratic Party. Now, do you think your respective goals and agendas can be met under by pressuring Democrats here at the local level? Uh, and a second, just a follow-up, in light of what happened in Seattle, would you uh, support a non-democratic candidate for mayor? My name is Rodney Pruitt. I'm a displaced teacher. I stood on the, on the stage at the auditorium and helped convince the teachers to walk out. I joined you in front of Fultons on the, on the River to deal with them. One thing I will say, I used to be head of one of the committees and I resigned because I felt we weren't doing anything. Until this city addresses race and call it as it is, nothing positive will happen in this city. That mayor will be reelected because many of the grassroots protesters do not vote. I am one of the black displaced teachers. Until recently, nothing has been put out in the media that has named us by name. As a black male teacher, we're collateral damage. Until this city addresses race, nothing is going to happen. And this city is a microcosm of the entire country. As long as you have politics that is deliberately vague, trying to cover everybody, the people that need to vote will never vote.
2: Thank you. Sure. Well, well thank you for the, the questions. Um, boy, there, there's a lot. I feel like I'm, you know, listening to the Cliff Kelly show here in Chicago. This is a very smart crowd. Um, but in terms of the, the first gentleman's uh, question about the, the role that the Democratic Party has played in the destruction of public education, we have not shied away from that. Um, it's, it's quite clear uh, from, you know, Cory Booker uh, to Mayor Nutter to Rahm Emanuel, these are all Democratic mayors. And so as a black man, I always get a little uncomfortable um, when both parties agree on what to do with black people. Um, and, and so in terms of who we support or who would I, I would support um, in any election, one of the things that I'm actually quite cautious about is this need to find a candidate. What I think this room should continue to do is to actually elevate the issues because as as been laid out, uh, there, there's no Superman. There's no hero The heroes are actually those in the room right here that are on the front line every single day. And if a candidate emerges out of the movement, then let's push that individual or individuals forward. If we look at what happened in New York, Bill de Blasio was running in fourth place. No one knew who Bill de Blasio was until the issue of stop and frisk was elevated. He put his black son on television, and then now the rest is history. And so we'll see how Bill de Blasio actually governs though. And so whether, I think it's important that not just here in Chicago, but across this country, that we find candidates who are married to our issues. As far as what Mr. Pruitt is saying, um, one of the things that I'm actually actually quite proud of what this union has done, is that we've actually uh, reawakened the black caucus within the Chicago Teachers Union. And I'm going to be quite frank with you, we did it under controversy. You know, folks, you're right, Mr. Pruitt, people get very uncomfortable when black folks get in a room and start talking to each other, you know, because we could be planning more than just Thanksgiving dinner. And by the way, we are planning more than just Thanksgiving dinner. And so as we begin to organize black teachers dealing with the issue of the loss of black teachers, it pains me that you have an educated brother in this room that is not in front of our children, and let's be clear, this is intentional the attack on public education is an attack on public sector. When Dr. King stood on that balcony and that bullet went through his face, he was very clear fighting for dignity for public sector workers that are overwhelmingly black. And so this room and rooms across this country not only have to tell the story of Mr. Pruitt, but they have to tell the stories of all the black teachers that even pushed the union when the union didn't recognize black teachers. And so uh, I think the final point that I'll make regarding just the, the issue of Black teachers and the loss of black teachers. Ebony uh, Magazine actually did a story on the loss of black teachers. And there is more press that is going to be done around the loss of black teachers. And the thing that made the strike so unique is that we were not afraid, particularly on that third day of the strike where we called out the Democrats, we called out the Republicans, and we clearly said, uh, Sean Johnson made it very clear that these policies are racist and we do have to deal with them. And as we deal with those issues, I'm confident a little more than, than than Ben, because Ben has been around so much longer than me. So I, I have not learned how to be a cynical. But I'm confident that we will rise out of the dust as we, can, as we continue to organize, and candidates will emerge, and who knows, those candidates just might be in this room.
3: I think the only thing that I'd add is actually, um, you know, one of the things that Harold Washington did say was that it's, it's not the man, it's the plan, right? And it is about what is, what is, the, what is, our, what is our agenda? How do we lift up those issues? Um, and it's true, we can't wait for the one person who's going to save us and rescue us because it doesn't work that way. And we don't build a long-term movement that way. What happens then when the man is no longer here and to that movement, right? What, what are we left in terms of um, what we've actually still got? So I think for us, um, we actually have a political organization where... Um, we're committed to, you know, to electing independent political um, political electeds who actually, ideally, do come from our base of folks who don't jump in just because they see an opportunity, but are bit, have been part of the fight long before an election came around. Um, I think that how do how do we actually create a space to um, for real uh, independent politi- um, independent politics in the city? Because um, it's clear that Democrats in, in Chicago Chicago Democrats aren't the answer for us, um, and they never have been. And I think there are a lot of tensions in terms of institutions like labor. And, and sort of struggles all the time with Speaker Madigan or the governor. or the, I mean, there's always, you know, there's all, preckwinkle, right? Like even the person that people were thinking would be the one who could take on the mayor. Pre, pre, you know, there's, there's nobody's, per, Democrats have real issues. Um, and I think that our organizing has to be about the issues, though, and not about just independent in, individuals or politics, because that alone is never going to get us to where we need to get to.
1: No, if I can just add one thing on on sort of the race front, I think one of the things with the mayor is that, um, you know, he's... Uh, ha- fought for gay marriage and he's been um, on immigration since he's been in city hall he's been pro-immigrant although his time in the past um, was not necessarily pro-immigrant at all Um, and you know he doesn't say these really outrageous racist things like some uh, politicians who you know have these videos going viral say so i think it's um he tries to obscure or or, um the national you know the maybe national media or national public um, doesn't realize how racist his policies end up being, you know, whether he is really a racist in his heart or not almost um, doesn't matter because his policies obviously have a racist impact, but um, since he's one of these mayors that's, you know, more liberal in, in some ways, um, I think he's been able to hide that, at least from the larger, I think people in Chicago are well aware of that, but I think you know nationally, and that will uh, will become an interesting issue if he runs for a higher office nationally um,
2: so anyway did yeah, if I could just add one other thing to the, the, um, the racist propensity of the mayor of Chicago um, if you look at the policies the failed policies that he pushes that it does have adverse impact on communities of color uh, right now the mayor of Chicago is pushing mandatory minimum mm-hmm. you know, which is going to exacerbate uh, the prison industrial complex that overwhelmingly is populated with black men And when the Black Caucus in Illinois um, actually blocked it from passing, because it wasn't going to pass in Springfield, and Eric Holder, uh, to the Obama administration's credit, are beginning to roll back on mandatory minimums, and Rahm Emanuel is doubling down on it. And what we have discovered, first of all, that locking people up longer uh, does not curb, you know, uh, violence. And so as you begin to look carefully at his policies, you begin to see the, the leanings that he has that are overwhelmingly against the interests of black and brown people. And I'll just take it one step further. Um, that when you push things like mandatory minimum, um, it has such tremendous impact on communities, uh, particularly as you know, teachers, as we you know, sit in front of classrooms day in and day out, and our children are dealing with the issues of poverty, not having enough food, being homeless, um, having parents that are um, in the penal system. After the Black Caucus in Illinois blocked it, the mayor issues a press release the next day saying that he cannot wait to congratulate the sponsor of the bill, which, by the way, the sponsor of the bill does not represent the communities in which he says he wants to help. The mayor went as far as to say that he cannot wait to congratulate this sponsor when the bill passes. So in other words, the mayor is saying that I cannot wait until we lock up more black men. Those are the policies that this man is pushing, and as a community, we have to elevate those issues to make sure that people are engaged so that we can give hope to people like Ben that change will come.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's a question right over here.
8: Uh, my name is Micah Utrecht. Uh, Carrie, I read the book, um, and one of the things I was struck by by reading the book is your interviews, you're, you're a very uh, sort of fair and balanced reporter. You seek out uh, the, uh, <laughs> the opinion uh, of, of everybody and, and everything you write about. And you speak, to, you speak to a lot of union leaders in the book. And, um, you know, we've got Brandon on the panel representing the CTU, a certain style of unionism uh, in Chicago. Um, but you, you speak to people in the book who I would say do not represent that kind of of unionism uh, that the CTU represents in the city. I remember you've got quotes from people who were saying things like, "Well, I'm just, I'm just sure, glad whenever uh, Mayor Man- that he'll even answer my calls. I'm just so happy that he'll even talk to me." Um, you know, you have these really kind of pitiful quotes um, from a lot of people from the labor movement, um, and, and and so there uh, there are clearly sort of different styles of unionism that are happening in the city, even. A few weeks ago, I read in the Tribune that one of the, uh, just to why not name names here, um, one of the uh, city's more progressive wi- uh, unions in the city, Unite Here Local One, gave, has given money to Rahm Emanuel's uh, election ap- uh, election, uh, re-election campaign, $25,000. Um, so I just wanted uh, uh, reflections on that, about the kind of different visions of unionism that, w- that we have uh, in the city and that can be seen in your book.
9: Uh, Ben, I agree with you that people should be responsible for what they do, whether it's voting, marching, voting on a referendum. I I agree with you. But I think it's also important to recognize that when Emmanuel was brought to the city to become mayor, he had a very powerful sponsor, the president of the United States. And that gave him a lot of credibility and a whole bunch of issues that he didn't deserve. But I thought the turning point in all of that was when... Ed Burke and Jerry Chico tried to make a political hit on him by denying him his residency status to run for mayor. And so he appeared to be a victim of the Chicago machine. And I thought, you put both of them together, and that's how you have an image that people can vote for without knowing a lot of the substance to it. And I think things have changed over the last couple of years, and I'm not saying He's beatable, or he doesn't have the money, or doesn't have the image. But I think that there's an opening now on the issues, on the candidates, that we wouldn't have had four or five years ago. So I would be a little bit more hopeful okay. about things. That's all I would say about that. And i like your thoughts on that. I mean, you know this stuff far better than I do, or a lot of us in this room. Well...
4: <laughs> uh, as you might imagine, this is not the first time I've expressed these opinions I have about Chicago's electorate. Um, in regards to the election of Rahm Emanuel, <laughs> the, the man was elected with the black vote. What he's done is just, I mean, I talk about the disdain he has for leftists. I have to wonder about the disdain he has for black residents of the city of Chicago who well, we elected him. I mean, he closes 50 schools in black communities, is not even in town when he... The announcement comes down. I mean, utter disdain. Well, the yeah, the way he treated Karen Lewis, which I thoroughly enjoy recounting. <laughs> so I'm willing to give the citizens of Chicago a makeover. What do they call it in golf? Do, uh, uh, do, a mulligan? Is that what it's <laughs> called? Yeah. I'm willing to give the citizens of Chicago a mulligan. <laughs> I'll work from the assumption that you're correct, that they were so caught up in Barack Obama's wink and nod to get him out of the White House. (laughs) And they were so sympathetic to his plight for being challenged on the residency issue, okay, (laughs) that then they were overwhelmed and they lost touch with their good senses. So they were wrong once. And I like to believe, and I do, occasionally show signs of being a believer, Brandon, Amisha. For instance, when I was at a football game, the Northwestern football game, it was in Evanston, right on the border of Wilmette, Rahm's hometown. And when his picture flashed on the screen, because Northwestern, in its infinite wisdom, decided to promote him at the start of the fourth quarter, I don't know why, probably because of payback for the the deal at uh, Prentice Hospital. But anyway, um, when his picture flashed on the screen, people booed, and it was a loud boo. (laughs) I mean, and this wasn't at Father Flager's church, which he had just been booed the week before, and it wasn't at the V103 party where he had been booed. This was at the Northwestern football game. So maybe you're correct. And maybe the people have come to their senses and realize that there 's a consequence for not paying attention when you have an election for just voting for someone because you think he 's been endorsed by Barack Obama, really, even though barack obama's just kicking him out of the White House uh, and for feeling sympathetic for a person um, for something like on a residency challenge, which he probably should not have been allowed on the ballot anyway so um, I'm willing to concede that there's a possibility that the people of the city of Chicago will prove me wrong this time and uh, rise to the occasion. I'm certainly hoping so.
1: I think uh, back there? Yeah. I just just wanted to piggyback on what
8: the uh,
7: display speaker said about race. Because we're not a homogenous country, really it's an issue of class, and that's why you know, you have the school closings and everything. I'm 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 also a teacher. And so yeah, we get jaded because truly like the two party system, I mean it, it, it doesn't matter. They they throw us under the bus. So hopefully, you know, there's a viable alternative, but I I, I don't know. But I, I appreciate especially you Ben Jirafsky, I appreciate all your articles, and you still won't accept my friend request. I'm, I'm upset about that
2: <laughs> on Facebook. That's all.
7: I'm surprised that nobody has investigated the $454 million venture contract, whether, whether the money that's going to that is yeah. going to be taken from the buses and trains and the maintenance of the CTA.
10: Just a comment. Uh, I, 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 you know I understand that, you know, that you're disappointed with the people of Chicago. But I think that happens throughout the country. It's not in, the, in Chicago only. I mean, we're not given many choices, and these people are making a choice by not doing it, by not voting. It may, may not be a great choice, but when, you're, when, when the political debate is controlled by the 1%, when the two presidential candidates spend $1 billion each, the, the money that they spent, they're going to answer to it doesn't matter how you vote or how I vote. And it's not only in this, con- this country, it's happening throughout the world. I happen to be Greek and I understand what's going on there. They're, they're using that as, as, a, as, as, a, as a, an experiment to see what they're going to do to the rest of the world. And it's really a great fight. And we have to fight in every front. And we can't disparage ourselves or the people that have given up. We try to, we try to empower them in some way and say, listen, listen, you can stand up to these people. And our votes can be more strong than their money, basically.
11: I had to run out to take care of my meter because that's a whole <clears throat> other issue. But <laughs> So I don't know if this was addressed while I was gone. But the citizens of New York City stood up this time. Now, we don't, like we said, we don't know how Bill de Blasio is going to govern, but a whole bunch of LGBT people ran away from Christine Quinn because they knew that she was not progressive enough. I want to know like, what when we're going to get our backbone. I mean, I just was wondering what the panel has to offer about how we can, like, I don't know, like, how can we make people just excited about you know, voting for somebody who matters. You know, I mean, I know we have to deal with a two-party system, but really we only have one here in Chicago. So it's figuring out who's the most progressive. I don't know. I don't know if I have a question or if it's just a how. how can we... How can we turn the corner in this city like they did in New York and then in a lesser degree L.A.? Because the, the guy they voted for spent time having office hours and didn't spend time in Hollywood. So that's why he got elected. So I don't know. I'm just stop voting your constituency and voting for what they believe in. I don't know. I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are.
12: I have a comment, too, and it feels like an observation, and I hope that I, I, I state it right. When I talk, I travel all over the country. When I talk to people, everybody is against corporate power. Everybody is against privatization. I mean the majority of people. And when it comes down to it, and I agree with the, the, the people on the panel, is when they start fudging about it is when it comes to the idea of race. And not even of poverty. Everybody's against poverty. But then they, they have this this uh, thing that if if they feel like it's, it's helping people of color, that somehow it's, it's some sort of disadvantage to the majority. And it is, it's sad. It's a, and I'm, I'm a native Chicagoan who's since relocated. I live in Los Angeles. I work in New York. And I get saddened by the progressive disintegration of uh, social uh, unity. In this city, I really, it uh, it, it just, um, it's heartbreaking. I see it in other places across the country, but I also see very progressive voices emerging in places like New York and in California. Part of it is because the youth are way more engaged in those uh, states and in those cities. That power shift is arising, and I, uh, I don't witness that much uh, sense of racism or resentment in younger people as I do in people of my age group and older. Mm-hmm. And so my only hope is in that transition and in that uh, 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 unification and those people being outraged enough to see that their futures have been not only blocked but subverted. So I don't know if I was articulate or not, but that was—I uh, just—that's the, the sense I get, and the outrage that pours out
1: through me. So, so that's maybe um, each of us just want to make a sort of closing statement, and we'll.
3: What I look at, what I look at, what's happening in the city, and. Um, what there, what I think what's needed to, to shift things and to build a movement and, and why that's so difficult, so much of this is about hopelessness and we're set up to actually feel hopeless for a very particular reason, right? Um, of course it's hard. Of course people are not engaged. Of course it feels like nothing can change, that we have no options. We're going to gonna just have to go with the best of a worse situation. And it's all very deliberate. And I feel like to me, when I think about organizing, um, an organizer said this to me when I was learning organizing, um, I used to be a union organizer, and one of the things that she said to me was that organizing was about an, you know, an, indiv- an individual feeling like they have power. Because if an individual doesn't feel like they have power, this idea of collective power, collective action is pretty meaningless. And we're set up all the time to individually feel that we have no power, and it's not even a feeling, right? I mean, it is. there are real constrictions on our lives and real challenges. But to me, that's what organizing is about, is how do you have those individual connections and relationships and help people see the spark of what's possible, both in their own life and therefore in their communities, in their schools, their workplaces, and in the city. And I do think there is. I, I absolutely do believe that people in the city get it. I get. I think they get what is at stake. I think they get um, what's wrong. I think they get that that things aren't the way that they want it to be. And I think it's our job as organizers to figure out how do we actually create the spaces and the opportunities for folks to step into that and actually work for, for progressive change. I think in the city of Chicago, that's like everywhere else. It's not. I mean, that's that's going to take organizing, and it's going to take us to actually um, really understand what we're up against and how do we actually despite what we're up against in terms of racism and poverty and, um, and capital and just the, sort of the, 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 the pressure of capitalism on our daily lives um, we need to understand that but also know that folks have, we all have major um, incredible agency despite all of that and resiliency and to me it's about how do we create the spaces for people to step in and take action and, and, and build real connections and relationships um, along the way and I think a lot of that's what's happening on the ground. The question is how do we get it to scale? Right. I think there's really good work happening across the city how do we get it to scale how do we move the labor movement with us because it's um it isn't a monolithic place and there's certainly lots of tensions but i think all of it there's all possibilities and i think there's an incredible spark that the the teachers and many other folks have actually shown that of what actually is really possible um the last thing I'll say is you should join our email list. Um, you should like us on Facebook and you should get engaged because we are organizing in neighborhoods across the city, really working to try to take back Chicago. There's lots of work that folks can do. So we hope that you'll continue the conversation and plug in.
4: Well, you know, uh, just to defend my. Uh, Wounded pride here. I am not as, quite as cynical as Brandon and Amisha would have you believe. Um, and uh, I actually believe, and this is kind of my own naive tave, actually, um, that what Amisha said was true. That when they had that TIF vote on Wednesday, just the fact that the Chicago City Council had something resembling a debate on this unbelievable scam uh, was a triumph of sort. And I appreciate that you guys had a bang on a lot of doors and make a lot of phone calls to get even that. And the fact that they, uh, they got 11 aldermen, uh, I'm not quite sure if one of those 11 actually knew how he was voting. But he voted the right way, so I'm <laughs> counting him as a, a yes. I think he got confused and voted the wrong way, but whatever. Uh, so they had the discussion. They had the vote. Um, And uh, so I do believe that it is possible in the city of Chicago to get people to entertain complicated thoughts, uh, ideas, and to try and to um, examine how their city is governed. Uh, But um, I think the greatest challenge is to try to overcome this sense that is so Chicago that uh, you can cut a deal. You can get your way uh, what you want by uh, sort of making your own private agreement with the person in power. I think that's so pervasive. It's one thing I've learned since moving to Chicago. I'm not from Chicago originally. So I feel there is a cynicism that's in uh, the people of Chicago, in the electorate, um, and that's very easily manipulated by powerful, wealthy uh, candidates like Rahm Emanuel. So I suppose your challenge is really to – sort of cut through all that. That's
2: my opinion. Uh, Thank you, Ben, uh, for all of the hope that you bring to Chicago. (laughs) But seriously, I mean, uh, no no one quite articulates um, what I'm thinking in such a smart way. So um, one of the things that I think was missed during the Chicago Teachers Union strike is that that strike set off a wave of strikes across the state of Illinois and quite frankly, across the the world. And so if there's any glimpse of hope that you can actually beat back um, these awful policies that Mayor Emanuel here in Chicago embodies... Uh, that even teachers who make $100,000 a year said we want $102,000 a year. And I'm not mad at them. I don't know what it takes to live in Lake Forest. Uh, <laughs> if we do, maybe we'll be in this book about being the 1%. Uh, but, but anyways, you know, we have strikes in Mexico, strikes in Brazil, um, that there's something that's actually happening across this globe that Chicago can take some credit for actually uh, pushing. And so if 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 the country, quite frankly, if the world is going to make sure that we have a fair tax, right, that the the rich are paying their fair share, that you actually have um, uh, an education system that works for all children and not just those who can afford a a quality education. If that's going to happen, it's going to happen because the brothers and sisters in this room make it happen. And so the only thing that I can leave you with is we organize, we knock on doors. We have house meetings. We have meetings in church basements. We do it the way that we know how to, and that's connecting with people, and then let the chips fall where they may. And if it turns out we don't defeat them this time, Jim Crow didn't come down after one blow. We live in a country that has sparked some of the greatest transformations that this world has ever seen, and it was regular, ordinary people which I hope this is not derogatory, but regular ordinary people like Carrie (laughs) and folks in this room that are brave enough to actually stand up and say what is right and say it in very difficult times. And so I'm only encouraged because I'm looking around this room and all of us represent a different segment in this city. So our charge is to leave here and begin to organize our communities, our churches, our fraternities, our sororities, our block clubs, to make sure that the issues are illuminated. And when the candidate emerges, they'll have a platform to run on and not just a party to represent. Thank you.
1: I think uh, those were perfect words to end on. So thank you, Brandon and Amisha and Ben again and everybody for coming. And so much thanks to Haymarket Brewery. And uh, thank you again for coming, everyone.